0: This morning, Jack read for us from the book of Hebrews, the very first chapter of Hebrews. And I want to talk about that this morning. title of my sermon is Family Celebration. There was a man named Bob Morley who was a counselor at a senior high summer camp in California. And one summer, when Bob was between jobs, he was pretty short of cash, but he went to camp and he, he did counsel at camp as he usually did. And the campers heard about this, that he was a little short of money. And so they took up a collection and they raised a pretty good amount of money, about 100 or $150, and they gave it to him as a gift because they knew he needed it. Now the camp had a tradition of having a farewell party on the last day of camp, on Friday evening. Well, the campers would put their money together and then one of them would go into town and buy, one of the counselors would go into town and buy snacks and drinks for for the teens. Well, Bob realized that the money that the campers had given him was probably the money that they had brought to purchase their snacks and their drinks. And so his first thought was to take the money and to go into town and buy snacks and drinks for the kids with that money. But then he heard a little voice inside say to him, Don't rob them of their joy of giving. A farewell party was held on Friday night, as usual. Instead of sodas, they drank water. Instead of chips, they found a few things around the camp kitchen crackers and, you know, that sort of thing. And it really didn't, from the outside, look like much of a farewell celebration. But for some reason, all of those teens remembered for years and years that farewell party, and they remembered it as being the best one that they'd ever been to. They experienced the joy of sacrificial giving. They had sacrificed their own self-interest, and they turn their attention on somebody else. And Bob kind of put it this way. He said, those little cups of water and those crackers constituted for us what communion was meant to be. Not just a solemn ritual, though it is that, but a celebration of mutual self-giving. I think that's a wonderful story. Today, we join millions of our sisters and brothers around the world as we come to the Lord's table to celebrate what we call Holy Communion. Some places, as I mentioned to the kids, call it different things, but it's all the same table. We're all gathered around that same big, gigantic, humongous table. This day reminds us that we are one in Christ. We sit here and we see a finite amount of people here. We only see a few uh, compared to the millions who celebrate communion this day. We are part of all of those people. We are part of that great big church the church down the street that way the church down the street that way that way and that way are all celebrating tonight to, today too world communion sunday we are it's as if we're all gathered around one table together and i think it's right that we think of it that way not only today but every time we gather around the lord's table different languages are spoken in some places different traditions are observed it's done a little bit differently from church to church, but our unity in Christ is still there and is still celebrated. But let's lay a foundation for our celebration of this holy meal. Imagine for a moment that somebody you know, a friend or an acquaintance or a co-worker or a neighbor or someone, says, I've noticed that you're a Christian. I know you go to church regularly. I know you're involved in your church. What can you tell me about the Christian faith, where would you start? How would you answer that question? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews starts at the very beginning. He starts at the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And the things he says about who Christ is and who we are as his followers are quite interesting and just as relevant today as they were thousands of years ago first of all, he says that Jesus is the mere image, the exact image of God. Let me read the exact words that Jack read for us shortly, a short time ago. It says in the third verse, the sun is the reflection of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided justification, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's pretty strong stuff to be said about a humble carpenter who came from Nazareth. You can't judge where a person will end up by where they start. That's for sure. Harry and Ada May had a daughter. Her name was Ann, Sandra. She was their first child. They had to travel 300 miles to El Paso, Texas, to deliver her. And when they brought her home, it was to their ranch on the Arizona-New Mexico border. And life was not easy there. They lived in a little adobe house with no running water, no electricity. There was no school within driving distance. So mom had to do what she could do, and with so few resources, anybody would have thought that Sandra's future was probably not going to be very bright. But when she was four years old, her mother started homeschooling her. She read to Sandra hour after hour. Later, she was sent to the best boarding schools that they could afford because they wanted her to go on to college. Like all good parents, wanted her to do better than they had done. Her father, Harry, had been accepted as a young man to Stanford University, but was unable to go because his father passed away when he was just about ready to leave for school and he had to stay back and he had to take over the ranch, so he never made it to college. So he was determined that his daughter would. But Sandra did go to Stanford. Then she went on to law school. Her name may sound familiar to you, Sandra Day O'Connor Who was the first woman Supreme Court judge in the United States You can't judge a person by their beginnings When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea He wasn't born to wealthy parents He received no special education But he grew up to change the entire relationship between God and us. As the writers of the New Testament looked back on the effect that Jesus had on everybody who met him, as they reflected on his resurrection and his ascension in the glory, they knew that he was no ordinary man. Who was Jesus? He was the very Son of God. Or in the words of the, of the writer of Hebrews, he was the reflection of God's glory. In the exact mirror image of his being. That might be a little hard for us to wrap our minds around and to understand. After all, we are a society who has taken God and moved him to the sidelines. Is it too much to ask us to take a leap of faith that our scripture asks us to and to call Jesus God? Maybe so. But as the writer C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago, we must make a decision. He says either Jesus is who he says he is, or he is a liar. And the writers of the New Testament are liars. Because their story is that when you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. There's an interesting story about Queen Elizabeth II. One of the queen's favorite places to go is Sandringham, which is her palace in Norfolk. She likes nothing better than to go there, and it's cold there most of the time. But she likes to go there and walk her dogs out there, out in the wind and in the cold. And sometimes she even goes into the village to shop. And one time while she was shopping, a local resident came up to her and said, why, you look just like the queen. And she said, well, how very reassuring. (laughs) Don't you think it's reasonable that the queen should look like the queen? The testimony of those who knew Jesus best was that he looked just like God. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, we see the unbearable sorrow of God when he held little children in his arms, we see the tenderness of God. When he condemned the self-righteous people, the people who exploit religion for their own gain, we see what is repulsive to God. He is the reflection of God's glory. This is who Jesus is. But what, is, what he has done is just as important as who he is. He tasted death. We see Jesus in chapter 2 of the same book of Hebrews, in verse 9, it says this about him. Was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here's the second thing we can say about Jesus. Not only is he the reflection of God, but he tasted death for you, for me. By the time she was 30 years old, Dr. Nancy Wexler was the head of the Commission for the Control of Huntington's Disease. She conducted a research project in remote villages in Venezuela. And one family in that area had the highest rate of Huntington's Disease in the world. In 1981, her team began doing psychological assessments of villagers who had Huntington's. They developed an extensive family tree, and they traced the the disease down to one woman who lived in the early 1800s. And they hoped that this would lead them to eventually find the Huntington's gene itself so that they could have a treatment and a vaccination for it. But after a few of the villagers had donated blood and skin biopsies, suddenly the project came to a halt. The villagers were afraid about giving blood. They were afraid about giving skin biopsies because they'd never done that before. And here were these strangers from the United States coming in, taking their blood and walking off with it. Nothing could reassure them that no harm would come to them. Even when Wexler explained that her own mother had Huntington's disease and that she was, in a way, one of them, they still didn't believe her and didn't trust her. Finally, one of the nurses who was on that research team grabbed Wexler by the arm and pointed to a tiny little mark that was on her arm. It was a biopsy scar that was left by the little piece of skin that was removed for analysis. And the nurse said, see this? See? She has the mark. This just proves that she really is part of the family. The villagers then understood. They had something in common. They began to cooperate, and the research went forward. The testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ, who was the reflection of God's glory, emptied himself and became like us a part of the human family. Not only that, but he tasted death for us. He, who could have called 10,000 angels if he wanted to, chose not to. He went ahead with what he came to do. We've heard that message so often, I think, that we become desensitized to it. I'm afraid that we forget about its radical and its life-changing importance. Do you understand what happened here? God came down from heaven in the flesh and lived here among us to teach us how to live, to show us how to treat others, and then to sacrifice his own body that we might have eternal life, that we can live forever. We just sort of gloss over it sometimes, I think. We're so used to hearing this that it doesn't sink in. It doesn't it it doesn't get to where it should be within us. It's a claim that is outrageous. It's just insane to think that God would do that for us. So either it's true or it isn't. And what does it say about us? It says that we matter. You matter, you are important regardless of our gender, of our race, of our sexual orientation, of our economic status. If Jesus felt that you were important enough to leave his royal throne, to come here and to give his life for you, then you matter. Here's how the writer of Hebrew puts it. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them. What does Jesus call us? Brothers and sisters. Another mind-boggling thought that doesn't ever seem to sink into us deep enough, I think. A nurse in in a clinic in Camp Pendleton, California, called for patient Robert McDonald. Two men got up and followed her. Then the younger man noticed that there was another man named Robert McDonald, so he turned around and went and sat back down. But now he was curious. And so Corporal Robert McDonald Jr., who was 21 years old at the time, asked his doctor to contact that other man's doctor. And that doctor confirmed that there were two McDonald's who had the same first, middle, and last name, This led to a reunion of a father and son who hadn't seen each other for 16 years. The parents had divorced. The son, who hadn't seen his mother since he was 12 years old, was raised by foster parents. And his father said that after spending some time in jail, judges denied him visitation rights and would not allow him to see his children. So the son, who was a repair technician at one of the, sta- the, camp, the stations there, Toro Air Station, was at the hospital for a checkup that day. His father, who was in the Navy, who lived on the Northern San Diego County base for about 10 years after retiring, wasn't feeling well, and he went to the hospital for treatment. A few, years, a few weeks ago, he said, was his son's birthday. He said he cried that day. He couldn't sleep. He was thinking about his long-lost boy turning 21. He said, if I had known that this day was coming, I'd have been pretty happy instead. So a father and son were reunited that day. This is a story of what happened on the cross. Because of what Jesus did for us, we are united with God. We are brought into a new relationship with the one who created us. In the words of our text, Jesus now calls you and I, his brothers and sisters. The celebration of Holy Communion, which we're going to do shortly, is a family celebration. We are God's family. As you take the bread and the cup today, no matter what form, think of Christ. And who he is. He is the reflection of God. Think of what he's done. He's tasted death for you. And then think of who you are. Brothers and sisters of Jesus. His own family. Hello and thank you for joining our podcast today. This is Pastor Alex Garnkars of Zion United Church of Christ in Peru. I hope that you enjoyed today's message. God bless. Have a wonderful day.